I'm wearing my, you probably can't see, but I'm wearing my free head nod shirt. Oh, you want to wear a shirt? Yes. I almost wore the hoodie, but I opted for the shirt because I knew I was going to get, I don't know, you make me blush a lot. I'm just like, you know, just enamored by you. So I, (laughs) because I, I I just knew we, you know, we might get a little riled talking about this stuff. You know how I get. I love it. I love it. Hi, Jillian here. And welcome to Let the Women Do the Work, the podcast where we tell true crime stories from women's perspectives. Because where there's a mess, there's someone who made it and someone getting to the bottom of it. Our subject this episode has been doing the latter, that's the second one, I always get confused, for over 20 years now. And a lot has happened along the way. Her name is Rabia Chaudhry. Yes, that Rabia. If you're an Obsessed Network listener, you've heard her name yelled many times. Queen Rabia, we deem her. And if you're new to our family of shows, you may still know her and her work. Aside from being one of the most famous names in true crime, Rabia is a lot of things. She's an attorney, civil rights advocate, and activist. She's also a New York Times bestselling author, was an executive producer on HBO's The Case Against Adnan Saeed, and has hosted and made three podcasts, Undisclosed, The 45th, and The Hidden Gin. Hmm. Anything else the listeners should know? I live in the suburbs of D.C., very exciting Maryland suburbs of D.C. And that's it. That's me. (laughs) And um, fluent in sarcasm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I live in the most boring suburbs ever. (laughs) And it's in the Maryland burbs where this whole story started. The story of Heyman Lee, a vibrant, lively, French-loving, field-hockey and lacrosse-playing teenager who was murdered at 18 years old and buried in a park. It's also become the story of Hay's ex-boyfriend, Adnan Saeed, also a teenager then, who was well-liked, smart, and ultimately blamed for the crime. No, no, I know. That music brings me right back there, too. Right back to the time when it seems like everyone on Earth was listening to their first podcast obsession. Serial season one. Also, what is it about that music? Everyone I know has a severe visceral reaction to that tune. Anyway, Serial is not the whole story. It's the 30,000 foot view, as Rabia calls it. And she spent most of her adult life zooming in on the details. A lot happened before Rabia brought the story to Sarah Koenig's door. And a lot has happened since. So let's kick things off with an update. At this point, Adnan has been in prison for over two decades. The trial that put him there produced more questions than answers, really. And we'll go more into that throughout the episode. But know this. Adnan was sentenced to life in prison without any physical evidence connecting him to Hayes' murder. And as the years have gone by, Robbie is stuck by his side as a legal advocate and friend. Through highs, like Adnan getting granted a new trial in 2016. Lows, like in 2019 when that retrial got taken away. And lots of waiting. We're going to go over some tough, disheartening shit in this episode. But I want you to know, right out of the gate, that 22 years into this journey, Robbie is hopeful for what's coming next. For starters, Adnan is earning his bachelor's degree as a member of the first cohort of scholars in prison through Georgetown University. Out of hundreds of applications in the state of Maryland, 25 were chosen. And Adnan is one of them. So he's doing his bachelor's in liberal arts and... I am so happy for him because, you know, he was, when he was arrested, he was, he had been accepted into college and he was ready to go and start his education. I just feel like this is like a a sign from the universe. He's getting ready to come back into the world in many ways and moving closer to home. And the reason for that, I think, is because of the other news, which is the DNA testing. Yeah, you heard that right. DNA testing is in the works after all these years. Rabia and the rest of Adnan's team filed a joint petition to get all remaining evidence tested, given the advancements in genetic testing since, you know, the 90s. And in March of this year, 2022, prosecutors agreed and the request was granted. And by the way, this is on the back of a new Maryland law that allows prosecutors to modify the sentences of people who were convicted before the age of 18 and if they've served over 20 years. Adnan sadly checks both of those boxes. So needless to say, his case was strong. Evidence is at a lab for testing as you listen to this. 
And, you know, in the petition, they said that if we don't find Adnan's DNA anywhere, then we're going to consider that exculpatory, whether or not we find anybody else's DNA. And that's huge because in a lot of cases, unless they hit somebody else, they will not accept that the defendant is innocent. So, you know, and we have every expectation um, that that's going to happen. I mean, he could be exonerated as soon as we get a result back, you know, that clears him. You know, but we, I'm praying, and everybody involved in this is praying, that we actually get a hit. We want to positively identify the person who killed her. So this is probably the closest we've ever gotten to not just trying to exonerate him, but also to try to identify who killed Heyman Lee. Oh, hey, girl. Hey, girl. Or should I say, ciao, Bella, because Babel's here. <laughs> or hola, Babel's here. Right. Okay, so here's the thing. As you know, I've been very honest about how I tried to learn Italian in high school and I just failed miserably, but not anymore because now I have Babel. And Babel, if you don't know, is the language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions. And I have to tell you, I'm well on my way to speaking Italian. The thing about Babbel, they have 15-minute lessons that make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. They're like bite-sized, digestible lessons that actually teach you practical ways to learn the language. Yeah, and they were created by over 100 language experts, so these people know what they're talking about. You can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, and they have speech recognition technology that helps you improve your pronunciation and accent, which you really, really need with some of these languages. I was going to say, can we slow down on that? Because you can like know the language kind of but if you can nail the accent the level of respect and like taken seriousliness you get when you actually use the language right it's really great to be able to read the sign that says a bar but if you want to order a drink like a real Italian <laughs> you really got to get the accent down ciao bella ciao bella eh molto buongiorno Exactly like that. Fam, we're obsessed with Babbel. I've been using Babbel on and off for a couple years to brush up on my Spanish because I'm really going to use it now that we can travel again. And right now, fam, you can save up to 60% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash women. Yep, that's babbel.com slash women for up to 60% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. I love you, Babbel. Thank you so much. It is really helpful and it's fun. It makes me feel like I'm really doing it. (laughs) Okay. Now let's go back to where this whole story started, in Woodlawn, Maryland, 1999. Ah, the suburbs, the trees, the strip malls, the cul-de-sacs, the glory of returning to your parents' house from college to do a bunch of laundry. That's everyone's experience with suburbia, right? Well, regardless, that's what it was for Rabia. She came home often as a University of Maryland student. And when she'd visit, she'd bump into the characters still living life in this place she'd left including her little brother and his friends. One was Adnan. So I would just see him around the house, and he was just the sweetest kid ever. Glasses, just, he would always be, he was like that one kid out of an entire group of kids who'd be like, all other teenagers will ignore you, but he would be the one to come and say, how are you? How are you doing? How is like your daughter? How is school? How is law school? How's your health? Can I get you a drink? I mean, he was always just considerate and sweet and lovely. And so I knew him just as basically my, you know, the nicest friend my brother had, basically. <laughs> the friend with manners. <laughs> yeah, the good one, the good friend. I didn't like yeah. many, I didn't like the others, but yeah, he was a good one. In other words... He was the kind of kid you couldn't picture harming anyone. A star student, stellar athlete, and scholastic achiever, Hey Min Lee was on her way to the top. The 18-year-old Woodlawn High School student was popular and well-liked. It's, it's a tragedy, uh, and, 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 and it's, it's, it's sad that uh, a young life has to be taken, uh, especially senior graduating, and uh, she has so much of a, uh, of a future ahead of her. So, you know, it's, it's just a sad day. In February of 1999, Hayes' body was found buried in a shallow grave in Leakin Park, just shy of three miles from Woodlawn High School. She had been strangled. A few days later, Baltimore City Police received two anonymous tip calls, instructing them to look into Hayes' ex-boyfriend, Adnan Saeed. We still don't know who these callers were, but we do know, thanks to Rabia's own reporting, that there was a cash reward up for grabs from Crime Stoppers for information on the case. And from there police were off and running. They zeroed in on Adnan pretty quickly. Now, remember, they didn't have any physical evidence connecting him. 
but they did slap together some timelines and found a window of time Adnan couldn't account for on January 13th, the day Hay disappeared a few weeks prior. Side note, the day after, Adnan attended a party where he smoked weed with friends. Do not ask me to mind my alibis high on Kush because you'll get some weird answers. Anyway, while police narrowed their view onto Adnan, there were several other viable suspects not looked into as deeply. There was the hiker who found Hayes' body. There was Hayes' actual boyfriend at the time. There was more to consider than the frustrated ex-boyfriend trope is all I'm saying. Not to mention the racist and xenophobic assumptions. Ugh, don't worry, we'll get to those. They ultimately went off cell phone data, digital DNA as they called it, to arrest and charge Adnan by the end of the month. They subpoenaed his phone records and questioned two people from his call log, his friends Jay and Jennifer. In his interrogation, Jay said he helped Adnan bury Hay's body. And Jen corroborated this, saying Jay had admitted it to her as well. So at 17 years old, still a minor, Adnan was charged as an adult with first-degree murder. And Rabia was home, two streets away from Adnan's house, visiting her parents when the news broke. A picture of him flashed on screen. And there he was, her brother's friend she liked best, being called a murderer? Oh, I mean, like, immediately, I, I called my mom. I was like, Adnan's been arrested for this murder. What is happening? She's like, what the hell is going on? This is absolutely impossible. Because, you know, everybody who knows Adnan is like, Adnan? no way, right? So I was like, let's go over there. So we go over his parents' house and all the lights are off and there's like some news crews outside and we go to the door and we knock and, you know, nobody opens the door and that was understandable. And apparently I didn't know this, but his dad was actually away. So auntie was home alone with her little, with her younger son. So she was, wasn't going to, she wasn't opening the door to anybody. And I understood that. Rabia set out to help. She began writing to Adnan, providing moral support, but it was a confusing time. She couldn't attend his first trial, a mistrial, due to law school exams. But she could attend his second one when she was on winter break in January of 2000. And this is where everything changed. People have to remember this was before 9-11. And after 9-11, I mean, it was like anti-Muslim sentiment was like front and center. There was no apologizing for it. We just, it was just right in our face. But before 9-11, it was there. It existed, but it was shocking when we actually faced it. And this is probably the first time we faced it. Uh, and the first time it was like, it was a punch uh, in the gut was his bail hearing. And the room had like 200 people packed in from the community. I mean, like religiously, like, you know, leaders from the mosques, business leaders, doctors who had you know, that they had known Adnan since he was born, people from the community, all these hundreds of people who had known him and knew the family and were like 12 people offered to put up their homes, you know, for his bail. And instead of seeing that as like, okay, this guy clearly comes from a very supportive community that is really going to mitigate any risk of him fleeing or they turned it around on us. And the prosecutor said right here, this community, you see how tight knit they are? They're the ones who are going to help him flee like, this is how much they care about him, that they're going to like, and that this is like part of the, acceptable in their culture to kill a young girl who rejects you. I mean, and the crazy thing was like these weird arguments they were making that was making our head spin because the argument was like Adnan was simultaneously this religious fundamentalist. And because he's a devout Muslim, it necessarily means he's abusive to women, number one. So that's obviously like a totally bigoted statement. But also at the same time, He's not just a religious fundamentalist, but he's also like drinking and smoking pot and sleeping with girls and partying. I mean, it's like, what are you, what is the argument here? Like, he's like any other teenager who's hiding whatever he can from his parents. You know, every teenager, Muslim or not, has a set of rules that they're always trying to break. And he was just being a teenager. And so it was horrible and shocking. And, you know, once we had the trial transcript analyzed, his religion and ethnicity came up 300 times during the trial. It was mentioned 300 times, over 300 times. That's egregious. I mean, the conviction, the tr that's it's unconstitutional, right? But the, the, one of the interesting things is like that issue itself has actually never been challenged in court. I remember being at the trial and I remember one of the kids they called to testify. It was this one of Adnan's friends, one of the kids from the mosque. And the prosecutor's asking him, how many times a day do you pray? Which way do you face when you pray? When the when the women pray, where do they do they pray next to you, behind? All this stuff. And we're like, what the fuck does this have to do with this murder? It had nothing to do with it. What it was doing was he was creating this 
sense for the jury that these people are weird, that these are some of these alien people who have these weird practices. There was nothing else they could point at. They're like, Adnan has no juvenile history, no criminal record, no record of violence. Like they couldn't find a single person to even say he'd ever picked a fight with anybody. So they're like, okay, so we will, the only thing we can use is that he's an angry Muslim male. And that's the motive. He's an angry Muslim male. He really couldn't catch a break in this mess. In fact, before Adnan had gone to trial, a fellow student named Asia McLean wrote to him, saying she remembered talking to him at the library on the day Hay went missing, at the same time that police theorized Hay had been killed. With Asia, he had an alibi. But Adnan's lawyer, an attorney by the name of Christina Gutierrez, didn't call Asia to testify. So that crucial voice speaking support to his case couldn't be heard. Awesome. And another thing, Asia said this conversation with Adnan in the library was about Hay, but that he was calm during it. He told Asia he wanted Hay to be happy after their breakup. Doesn't sound like a destructive ex to me. Sounds like a kid learning how to cope with change. But the narrative closing in on Adnan was far from empathetic. At trial, he was poised as a star-crossed lover seeking vengeance. I mean, the fact that Adnan was a, like a, an A student, an honor roll student, he was a volunteer EMT, he was this all-around great kid. The judge said to him at sentencing, and this is, I think, one of the most crushing moments, maybe even more crushing than when the jury found him guilty, was he when he was sentenced a couple weeks after that, the judge said, you have created this facade of being this perfect, charming, smart, high-achieving kid, and you've deceived everybody. And you, know, you got to think about, this is a 17, he, well, he turned 18 while he was waiting trial, 18-year-old kid. You're not talking to a, like, 45-year-old serial rapist or killer. You're talking to a kid, and you're telling that kid everything you've achieved and worked hard for and done to make everybody proud. Basically, that that is a cover for this murderous psyche. I mean, it was awful. It was, that was one of the worst moments. That judge, my God. That judge, I will never forgive her for that. Because she could have sentenced him without the cruelty of that statement. I mean, what kid who's like in ninth and 10th grade is like, I'm going to be the most amazing student and track star and volunteer just to like throw people off my scent? <laughs> Look, teenagers, they just don't think that far ahead at the very least. <laughs> they don't think There's that far no ahead. There's no such thing as a teenage <laughs> mastermind. Teenagers are teenagers. They're idiots. They, they're not, they can't be masterminds. Think of yourself at that age. She's right. I mean, think of the teenagers in 1999. Could they have pulled this off? Yeah, you nodding your head listening to this. I see you. How thoughtful were you? You couldn't even remember to feed your beloved Tamagotchi. Seeing this defamation of Adnan's character unfold before her very eyes affected Rabia. Here she was in the process of learning about law and how it keeps society spinning, only to see it spin out of control on one of her loved ones. The thing about law school is... It's all theory. It's all theoretical. You're like reading these cases, reading the precedents, or like, oh, this is why the judge ruled this way. It does not show you how shit plays out in court. You have no idea how that happens at all. It was horrifying to me to see how it actually worked in a courtroom. And it put me off off of criminal law for good. I, I was like, I, mean, I can't do this because I just saw how devastating it was. I remember thinking I would never want to be a judge. I would never want to be that person who says... You're going to spend the rest of your life in prison. I mean, just the karma of it, it really put me off. And it was um, right just a couple months after he was convicted, I was offered an internship at the Office of the Public Defender in D.C. And I said no, because I just couldn't stomach it. So how'd she get to that point? I wasn't raised in the Baltimore area. I was raised actually in the boonies in Western Maryland. And it was a very kind of rural area. And I spent most of my formative years there um, from middle school through high school. And the thing is, like, I'm the eldest of three. And my mother has always kind of been like this. She's a real badass and she's terrifying. And she has always been kind of the social justice, like, not a warrior, but just always, always concerned. So I just remember growing up, her constantly saying, do you know what's happening in Chechnya? Do you know what's happening in Kashmir? Do you know people are starving in Ethiopia? Do you know what's happening in Palestine? Like, it was a constant diet of social and political issues that we should be concerned about. We meaning me and my brother and sister. And she would always say that 
one day you're going to die and you're going to face God and God is going to say, what did you do to make this world better? Like, I gave you education. I gave you opportunities in America. I gave you money, time, youth, health. What did you do with all those things I gave you? And this was like burned into my psyche. And I just have always felt this huge moral responsibility that you gotta like, you have to do stuff for other people. So, yeah, I mean, like I was just, that's how my mother raised us really. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's the obvious answer why you were drawn to be an attorney. No, I was not. I'm a failed med student. I was always supposed to be a doctor. Now, to her credit, Rabia didn't fail med school. She burnt out in her third year. Couldn't do chemistry, she says. Fine, fair enough. So she started perusing for other options. And I took the LSAT on a complete whim. I had never in my life considered law school. On a complete whim. And I scored like in the top five percentile in the country or something crazy. (laughs) Of course. And I was like, well, I guess it was meant to be. And so um, I, there were two law schools that offered me admission without even an p- application because, based on my score. And that was that. I just went to law. I'm like, sorry, mom, dad. And they were devastated. So back home in South Asia, and this is true for India, Pakistan, that, that entire region, and I don't know what it's like in the rest of the world, law is like the lowest academic rung. Like if you can't get into any other profession, you go to law school. It's weird. It's not like America. So (laughs) yeah. So over there, doctors and engineers in the top, right? Accountants, fine. Okay. Lawyers are like the worst students go to law school. Like that's how it is. It's crazy. So they have very little respect. So my, my family back home in Pakistan, when they found out I was going to law school, they're like, we thought she was a good student. What happened? Oh my, like she was doing so well. And now she was doing so well. Yeah, she, she took the be... LSATs on a whim. Yeah. Complete failure. So that's how I ended up in law school. <laughs> oh my God. By the time she finished, Adnan had already been in prison for a few years. And then 9-11 happens and suddenly it's a shit show in our community. A lot of people don't know really what happened. People are very focused on the war on terror that was like external. There was a war on Muslims in this country. This just in, you are looking at obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers. So you have no idea right now? Oh, there's another one. Another plane just hit. Right. Oh my God. Another plane has just hit. It hit another building. Flew right into the middle of it. Explosion. Today, our fellow citizens our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil, despicable acts of terror. Department of Homeland Security will have nearly 170,000 employees, dedicated professionals, who will wake up each morning with the overriding duty of protecting their fellow citizens. The people of the United States and our friends and allies will not live at the mercy of an outlaw regime that threatens the peace with weapons of mass murder. We will meet that threat now. This chill affected the Muslim community in the U.S. from all sides. The Department of Homeland Security emerged out of this moment, which shoveled billions of taxpayer dollars into forms of security with plenty of ways for xenophobia to sneak into law. The Patriot Act planted its flag on American domestic policy. President George W. Bush even started a registry called the National Security Entry Exit System. The program required non-visa holders from Arab and Muslim-majority countries to register themselves, get fingerprinted, undergo interrogation, and check in routinely. Violators could be subject to arrest and even deportation. Rabia remembers this time and recalls that it felt like members of her community were disappearing from sight and for good. I was still in law school when this happened, and the embassy of Pakistan contacted me and said, we don't have like any American Muslim lawyers. We know you're still in law school, but will you come and work with us? Because we have thousands of like all these Pakistani nationals who are panicked. They're here on visas or studying. So I began working with them. And then it just, it became all about civil rights and immigration, because all of that is very closely tied to the counter-terror stuff, civil rights, immigration, counter-terror, and policing. And that's the work I started to do as their years are going on and I'm doing my work, which is mostly civil rights oriented and immigration oriented work. 
Adnan is plotting through the appeal process, which takes forever, right? So I'm there in the sense that I'm like, when he's trying to figure out what lawyer to hire, I'll go visit the lawyers and say, okay, I recommend this one or do the research or try and help his family navigate the system. I remember one appeal hearing that happened, I think it was like 2007 or five or something. His mother and I were the only people in the room for the hearing. I mean, like it was that lonely, that road at many times. And it wasn't until we got to the point where we were ready to file what's called the post-conviction appeal in 2009. And that's when you can show the court new evidence. And I was like, it's time to find Asia McLean, that witness, his alibi witness. And then girlfriend would not show up. She refused to testify. So I had to testify. I had to testify that I spoke to her and she gave me an affidavit. If she had testified, I wouldn't have to testify. I had to testify. And I remember after testifying, I testified that Asia McLean gave me this affidavit and this is how she, how it came to be and what she told me about remembering that day that Heyman disappeared. And right after I testified, the prosecutor testified, the prosecutor from the trial and said, well, Asia McLean contacted me just recently and said that she was coerced by me, by Rabia, that she was coerced by Ms. Jodhry and um, she gave her the affidavit under duress. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I'm sitting in the courtroom like, what the fuck is he saying? Like, that's a complete lie. I didn't even know her. But that's when I realized we're going to lose. I'm like, we're going to lose this appeal. So the hearing ends and then it's going to take like six months to get a ruling. But in the meantime, I was like, F it. I'm going to the media. That's when I contacted Sarah Koenig. And the rest is serial. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're back here. Of course we are. Serial put this story and podcasts on the map. But while everyone was buying their first microphone and scouring Reddit for theories, Rabia had her own opinions. Hey, girl. Hey, girl. Credit Karma's back. Look, you know credit cards scare me. I know, me too. Well, they used to. They used to before Credit Karma. I was going to say, I wasn't financially responsible until I met my husband, who basically does what Credit Karma does and helps me figure out the exact right credit card for me. Yeah, so they help you zero in on the right option for you and apply with more confidence because I don't know about you, but getting rejected for a credit card is like a getting shot with a bullet. It is horrible, <laughs> but not anymore. Well, get this. Credit Karma uses your credit profile to show you offers that are tailored to you your financial situation. And maybe, maybe the best part, Credit Karma uses your credit data to show you your chances of approval before you even apply. So you're not just going in blindly. Like if they're like, girl, this is not for you, not yet, not right now, then okay, not putting yourself out there. Fam, the whole thing is 100% free and won't affect your credit score. People think if you check your credit, it like affects your score, not with Credit Karma. So ready to find the right card for you? Head to Credit Karma and check out your personalized mix of offers today. Go to creditkarma.com or the Credit Karma app to find the card Hard for you. That's creditkarma.com. Create your own karma. Yeah. And buy me something pretty. Okay. <laughs> as long as I get points. And you know what? Credit Karma will tell me. <laughs> hey, girl. Apostrophe's here. I love the apostrophe. This is all about, like, saving us from the acne, which can be such a big problem. Yeah. So Apostrophe is a prescription skincare company, and it offers science-backed oral and topical medications that are clinically proven to help clear acne. And at Apostrophe, a board-certified dermatologist creates a personalized treatment plan that is specifically tailored to your unique skin. Everyone's skin is different. You need a professional to tell you what's up. That's so fancy. You get a board-certified dermatologist. Yeah. And you know why? Because you take a quiz. Every answer is right because it's yeah. your answer, yeah. unique to your life. So you tell them about your goals and your medical history, snap some selfies, all for the doctor, and then they come back and they're like, hey, girl, this is what you need. Yeah. Have you used this? So this treats adult acne, it reduces dark spots, and it improves skin texture. And every winter, I love the winter, but my skin gets really dry and it gets a little dull. So I've been using Apostrophe for brightening and improving my skin texture. And I have to tell you, the thing about skincare products is that while they can be great, they can also actually be confusing. Not anymore, because Apostrophe is so, so clear about what you're using when. And if you kind of have sensitive skin, they'll say, start with this like once a week and then move up. They are so clear and so transparent. And to me, that's maybe the most helpful 
apart. So fam, we have a special deal for our audience. Save $15 off your first visit with an apostrophe provider at apostrophe.com slash work when you use our code work. The code is only available to our listeners. Right. So to get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash work, click begin visit, then use our code work at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. That's A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E dot com slash work and use the code work to get your dermatologist crafted treatment plan for $5. And we thank Apostrophe for sponsoring our podcast. Yes, thank you, Apostrophe. And don't get self-conscious about skin stuff. We all have skin stuff. Don't worry about it. It's really just your podcast. That's true. (laughs) My next guest is the host of the wildly popular Serial Podcast. Please welcome Sarah Koenig. Listeners were obsessed and left dying to know if Adnan Syed, already in prison for 17 years for murdering his ex-girlfriend, Hey Min Lee, is guilty or innocent. Okay, so do you think Adnan's guilty? I think he had something to do with it, but I don't think he should be uh, should have been in prison. Serial called into question whether Heyman Lee's ex-boyfriend, Adnan Syed, was properly prosecuted and then ultimately convicted of murdering her. No, I think he's innocent, completely. I think he had nothing to do with it. I think he's not guilty. Shouldn't have been convicted. And memorialized her reporting in a 12-part podcast that has now been downloaded over 5 million times. I still don't feel that there's enough evidence to back up that he did do it. Not enough evidence. Not enough evidence to convict. Huge honor to be here in this dazzling uh, company and also to be the first podcast to ever win a Peabody, um, which we've been expecting. Ah, cereal. You know, I'll tell you, that Sarah Koenig really knows how to spin a yarn. And I give her credit. I ate it up just like the rest of us. I ate it up like entertainment because that's the purpose it served. And I acknowledge that that's objectively fucked up given how heartbreaking the story is. Needless to say, it's clear that Sarah Koenig and her team were out to tell an amazing story. That was their goal. And they succeeded. It was a global sensation. But for Rabia, that wasn't the intended outcome. I only had one hope. I told her this. I said, I don't care if this ends up, if you end up not reporting it. I don't care if it ends up a one-hour radio show. I don't care what you do with it. What I want to know is, are you as a journalist able to find new evidence in this case that we have been unable to find? Like, maybe you can get a witness to talk. Maybe you can find a smoking gun we couldn't find. I didn't know what Sarah and her team had uncovered, what the the podcast was going to say. Listening to it every week was just, I actually got physically sick in those few months. It was one of the worst periods of my life. It was hard. It was everywhere. And it was really hard to manage. And it was also really painful because it obviously spawned thousands of Reddit threads and guilters and people attacking us and people saying crazy things like Rabia using this for fame. I'm like, you think for 17 years we've been sitting on this case because I thought, like, what are you saying? So it was bad. And, and you know, Serial was amazing in terms of a, a story. I wish I wasn't connected to the case because then I could have enjoyed it. But it was, as an attorney and from an investigative standpoint, it was really disappointing. In Robbie's opinion, there were some oversights in the journalism of it all. For example, in the third episode of Serial, Sarah dives into the investigation performed by two homicide detectives on the case, Ritz and McGillivary. Despite those names, they are not characters from some old-timey 1940s radio show. These guys were two cops in Maryland. But yeah, some of the shit they said and did makes you wish it were fiction. Sarah mentioned a brief call she had with McGillivary. Among the few things he told her, he said of Adnan, quote, beyond question, he did it. But what were his and Ritz's standards for certainty anyway? Because theirs is a flawed history. In fact, both worked on cases since Adnan's that ended in exonerations. Ritz sent several innocent people to prison, including someone he admitted he intentionally didn't read Miranda rights to during the first 90 minutes of their interrogation. And both men have been sued as a result of such behavior. Robbie has sent the team at Serial materials proving all of this. And they acknowledge none of it. Apparently, this context didn't matter for the story. There was also reporting about the cell tower data that didn't track with Rabia. There was little to nothing about the anti-Muslim bias in the trial, among other things. And most notably... There was one episode left, I remember, and she came to talk to me at my parents' house and interviewed me in the basement and said... And I was like, Sarah, I know there's one episode left. Like, everybody's waiting to hear where does Sarah Koenig fall on this. 
And she said to me there, she's like, Rabia, in my heart, I think he's innocent. But she didn't say that. She never said it. But she did know it. I remember I used to cry a lot then. (laughs) I cried a lot. (laughs) Serial made me cry a lot. Everything that happened after Serial made me cry a lot. It was a really rough year, I would say. But Serial also introduced me to podcasts the way it introduced other people. So Rabia took it upon herself to educate the world about Adnan's story. The right way. The attorney's way. Her way. Serial got her blogging, supplementing the rabid conversation on the case with overlooked facts. So anyhow, I was blogging. These other lawyers, Susan Simpson and Colin Miller, were blogging. I didn't know them, but we started reading each other's blogs and communicating, and I was sharing case files with them. And But I had friends tell me, it's awesome, all your blogging, but ain't nobody reading it. Nobody wants to read your blogs, okay? <laughs> like your 100-page cell phone evidence blogs. So put it into a, an audio format and make it a podcast, like a follow-up to Serial, just based on what, everything you've written. So it was just going to be a one-off. We didn't know what we were doing. We had no intention ever of creating a a show that was going to last. We were just going to do Adnan's case, and that was it. But then, I mean, as we were doing his case, other people started reaching out and said, would you do our case? Would you look at my defendant? Would you look at my brother's case? You know, and then we just couldn't stop. Undisclosed would go on to extensively cover 12 more wrongful conviction cases. And Rabia got a book deal to write about Adnan's case from her own research perspective. She was hesitant at first, but when she asked Adnan, he encouraged her. The logic being, if someone's going to write this book, it better be Rabia. It was called Adnan's Story, and I highly recommend it to anyone looking for a rich analysis of the story. You can tell Rabia's a lawyer, but you can also tell she's a human being, infusing her identity and Adnan's into the pages. She begins each chapter with a verse from the Quran, which sort of punctuates this long legal tale with insights from their shared Muslim faith. I mean... I feel like it's interesting. Many of the defendants that we've worked with over the years in an, on Undisclosed, them and their families, all tend to be people of faith. Like either in prison, they have become, and maybe because you we need you need this anchor, some kind of an anchor to get you through it. It's such a long haul. But yeah, my, look, my faith instructs every so many parts of my life. And for me, it was important to put that in the book so people understood Adnan, our community, how we saw what was happening around us and to him. I just was desperate to fight this idea the state put out in the world in 1999 that that Muslims would condone the murder of a young woman and that this is endemic to our religion, that there's no justice in Islam, that we don't believe in mercy and compassion. You know, we have a we have a worldview. There's a way that observant Muslims view the world. And it's through the lens of scripture. And so I wanted to share bits of that scripture so people could understand that and understand how important God, millions of prayers. So many prayers have been said for Adnan, man, he has sucked me dry of prayers. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's been very important to all of us to get through this. And the media machine just didn't stop. The book became The Case Against Adnan Saeed, a docuseries on HBO, which went on to accomplish what Rabia had always wanted. It furthered the investigation of the case. The docuseries dove deeper into other possible suspects, notably Hay's actual boyfriend at the time, as well as that hiker who found the body. And there's further investigative work discussed on Hay's body too. Beyond obvious strangulation, Hay had these bruised-looking spots on her in the shape of diamonds. An expert was brought in to look at the lividity, or gravitational pull of blood. Through this, They identified a concrete tool that could have pressed up against Hay's body to leave those marks. It also featured attorney and glorious investigative nerd Susan Simpson explaining her discovery of the famed fax cover sheet from AT&T. The most important information on it was this. It said that only outgoing calls reliably reveal the location of callers and that incoming calls do not. Every call the prosecution used to link Adnan to Hayes' burial site was an incoming call. This was a bombshell discovery, and she explained it on camera. The documentary also features intimate interviews with Adnan's friends, family, and wider community. Producers brought in a couple of grass guys, yeah, grass guys, to look at the vegetation under Hayes' found car. The frame on Adnan's story was zooming into the details, just as Rabia wanted. 
I mean, it was wonderful to get this like executive producer credit, but really that just means like they bought the book. You know, I, <laughs> I was like a supplier, you know, if they needed something, needed to talk to somebody in the community, needed some documents, you know, I just gave them whatever. I think two things that were hard were filming with Adnan's family was always hard for me because I feel very protective of them. And I didn't want at any point for them to, to be exploited. And also what was really hard and awkward because we didn't know how this is how it worked was you just assume the documentary just kind of run, like they just film you as you go about, but no, it's like, can you stare out the window and adjust your scarf and just like look pensive? Okay. Can you, <laughs> can you walk to your car from your house? But okay, now go back and can you do it again? Can you do it a third time? And I'm like, is this? It's not, you're making me act. And every time it gets more and more awkward. I just get worse and worse at it with every take. So that was very, I hated filming me, but they did some great investigative work too. And that's what, what was really thrilling to watch is some of the stuff they uncovered. And in the tornado of all this new information, new leads, surprising angles, there was still space for Adnan and Hay too. Something the documentary does beautifully is it portrays Hay and Adnan as they were, two teenagers who fell in and out of love. Director Amy Berg achieved this by animating sections of Hay's diary. This is actually how the series begins. I have had over the years so many dreams about Hay. I think about Hay all the time. I remember her as she was at that time. And there's times when I'm like, I just kind of will, I'm like, you know, Hay, talk to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I want to make a connection to her. But, you know, her family has never spoken to us. Her community hasn't. And that's been a real struggle because we can't have more access to her and understand her more without those connections. Her diary, however, just shows you how bright and sweet and just a wonderful young woman she was. And, like, I feel like we could all relate to that. Like, you know, I'm in love. Okay, now I hate him. Okay, now I'm in love. You know what I mean? Like, it was like exactly every 17-year-old girl's diary. And Amy, when I saw what she did in the first episode where she illustrated the diary, I mean, I wept. I really wept when I saw that. It was the most, it was beautiful. Um, I wept because Hay was represented in that way, but also because Adnan was. It was the first time I saw Adnan represented as a young boy. One of the big frustrations that I have is that people, when they talk about Adnan, even if they think he's guilty of this and that, they treat him like he's like this middle-aged psychopath and they keep forgetting he was a 17-year-old kid. It's like, do you know what that meant, what that was like, what that is like? And so Amy was able to capture him as he was at the time, not who you see today, right? Like this big grown man. And I felt like she gave him a voice as well in a way that he never had. Amidst the media storm, the appeal effort, and the long, long fight, Adnan was granted a new trial in 2016. And there was hope that the young, vibrant kid from all those years ago would return to court and finally share his story. Hey, girl, Pros is here. Oh, Pros! Look, you've got such gorgeous hair, but that's what Pros is all about, right? It's like a personalized hair care situation. Yeah, so Pros makes custom hair care that's effective because it's personal for you. So they use natural ingredients, proven results. Again, you take a quiz, tell them what you need. So for me, I have a lot of color in my hair. I need to make sure that the shampoo and conditioner I'm using doesn't totally mess up my color. They also ask you, like, where in the world you live. So New York City has uh, quite a bit of pollution. <laughs> <laughs> that is all part of the shampoo and conditioner. So I don't want my hair to get dried out. I don't want it to be flat. You tell them exactly what you want and what you need. And the scent. Hello, you can pick the scent. Then they send it to you. Oh, and the color. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. And you can pick the color. And they send it to you. And it's exactly what you need. So you don't have to go and like Google, is this right? Is this right? Is this cruelty free? Is this vegan? Is this that? No, because Pros has it all for you. So girl, you were telling me that you've noticed that the texture of your hair has changed since you've been using the shampoo and conditioner? It is hand down the best conditioner I've ever used. And what I love about the shampoo is that it gives me a really deep, clarifying cleanser, but it doesn't weigh my hair down. And that's a fact. I gotta tell you, we've been doing a lot of live shows lately. Your hair is popping. Thanks, Pros. Also, fam, if you're not 100% positive Pros is the best hair care you've ever had, they will take the products back, no questions asked. I love that. Pros is the healthy hair regimen with your name all over it. Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 
15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash work. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash work for your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off. You look great, but then you're going to use pros and you're going to be like, oh my God, where is my, what has my hair been doing this whole time? <laughs> your hair is popping. Thanks. <laughs> And then, just days before the documentary was set to premiere, the Maryland Court of Appeals rescinded Adnan's new trial. Three years after he was granted it. After all that waiting, Rabia's will was shot. What it was like, it was truly traumatic. I mean, I can't... So I was going through, at that time, a very difficult personal time. My marriage was, like, in a really bad place. In fact... The ruling came in on a Friday. Thursday, my husband and I had flown to go to this like marriage counseling couples retreat. Okay. I was already raw. And I'm sitting with all these couples on Friday, you know, who are at this retreat. And I'm like, do I still want to be married? And this is my second marriage. I'm like, what am I doing? And suddenly I started getting messages on my phone, including I think one from Jillian that was like, Rabia, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Rabia. I'm like, what the hell is going on? What are, what's everybody sorry about? <laughs> oh, no. And I lost it. I got up and I ran. I When I realized what happened, we were eating lunch and I ran. I ran to, to my room. They had like these lodgings on campus. And I wailed and screamed. And I said at that, my husband came running after me. And I was like, you know what? I'm done with you. And I'm done with Adnan. I'm like, I'm done. I have wasted decades on both of you. I'm walking away from all of it. You know, I'm like literally going to reinvent myself as another person. It was that bad. And then... One of the lead counselors, in fact, I think he was a founder of this organization, came to my room, just like one of the kindest men, him and his wife, and they talked to me and they told me about how their daughter has been in and has been in prison for a long time and how painful it was for them and how she kept getting denied parole. So they understood my pain and it was, they just wrapped me in a lot of love. And I had to fly back on Sunday to catch the premiere of the documentary. Adnan, I couldn't even bring myself to talk to. I couldn't, not for weeks. And when I did, finally, two weeks later, in 20 years, I had never heard him cry. And he wept and wept and wept, and I wept. And I went to see him a couple weeks after that. And I think within a matter of a month, he had lost 40 pounds. His beard had gone gray. He had just aged, and he wept again. And I had never seen him cry in all these years. And he said to me, because he, people might remember from the documentary, he had been offered a plea deal. The attorney general said, you know, we're going to DNA test this stuff. And and when it all came clear for him, they made him an offer of four years. But he had to take a guilty plea. And Adnan said, I will not say that I did this when I didn't do it. And they wouldn't offer him an Alfred plea. And so I said to Adnan, I said, you know, the guilty plea came with four more years. They wanted him to serve four more years and then take a guilty plea. And I, so I said to Adnan, and this was three years ago, I said, give me those four years. I'm like, F the attorney general. Because he was like, should I have taken them? Maybe I made the mistake. And I was like, no, you didn't make a mistake. You did the right thing. You did what your conscience told you to do. You give me those four years and we will have you home in those four years. And well, we have one year more to go. Yeah. It was hard. One thing that's clear about the passing of time is that sometimes you can really see it. With a child growing up, oh, yeah. with Adna, what you just said, describing him, his beard going gray, and he was such a he was a child at seventeen, eighteen, and now he's not. And what is that like for you to actually see it in, in a tangible way? You know, there's this really weird. I have this really weird sense of um, some kind of disassociation with the passing of time when it comes to this case. It's almost like we're stuck in amber. To me, I still see. I still see Adnan as that 18-year-old in the courtroom being sentenced. And, like, it, to me, he's, I know he's a grown man, but he's still stuck in time. And I feel like... I feel like I'm still trying to rescue that 18-year-old. So, when when he was incarcerated, my, my eldest was four years old. And Adnan used to call her. He loved her. He said she looks like Bambi. She has huge eyes. And, you know, she's she's almost 25 now, right? And then when I had my surprise baby boy in my 40s, 
right before the documentary came out. I was like, well, Adnan will be home soon because we're going to win this appeal and uh, he'll see my son Yasin grow up. And Yasin is almost five now, right? So it's like time does pass and Adnan's parents are really elderly. His mother has stage four cancer and his father had um, COVID last year. And then like after COVID, he has kind of mentally not been the same. It's weird. So that's my biggest fear when it comes to time. My biggest sense of time is really watching his his parents age and my parents, my parents who love him very much too, and thinking, can we get him home while they're all still around? I'm sorry, I always get emotional when I, I just, when I feel, when I just remember being back in that courtroom, because it's hard to believe it's been so many years. It's been 22 years. Yeah, 22 years. It was in January of 2000. What I've learned is that it's always a long haul. The longest haul, lifetimes it can take to make changes in systems. What I've learned is systems are made up of people. So sometimes it comes down to changing one person and you can change an entire system. What I've learned is that sometimes you've got to plant all the seeds and maybe the next generation is going to pick. You're not going to see the fruit of your labor But I also learned that I personally am very, very motivated by anger, like anger and rage. Like I, with the nonce case and really all my defendants, but certainly with the nonce case more than anything, because I was there throughout it, there's always rage right under the surface, like this righteous rage that I'm like, fuck you, you are not getting away with this. And that's what keep, like that's what makes me keep working on it because I'm so indignant. And my thing is, you know, the state, the people in the state are going to change. The prosecutors will come and go, we are still going to be here, bitch. We are not going away. So fuck yeah. you're going to you're gonna tire of it. We're not going to tire of it, right? Because there's no alternative. You cannot walk away from this human being. So yeah, that's what I've learned. And, you, and what I've learned is persistence works. You hear that, listeners? Persistence works. Pretty easily said if you're an intellectual powerhouse like Queen Rabia, but hey, we all have to start somewhere. And you can start by following Rabia for updates on Adnan's case. The DNA testing that could set Adnan free and lead to Haven Lee's actual murderer is in motion. But 2022 is a gubernatorial election year in the state of Maryland. And who's running for state's attorney? None other than the prosecutor who put Adnan behind bars in the first place, Thiru Vignaraja. If elected before the testing's complete, he could reverse these efforts. Rabia will be posting about how you can help leading up to the primary this July. And remember, these stories come from tragedy. Getting the wrongfully convicted out is justice for Hay and victims like her because it gets us closer to the truth of what happened to them. We cannot let the victims get lost in this. Let the Women Do the Work is a production from the Obsessed Network, and it's produced by Becca DiGregorio, Natalie Grillo, Patrick Hines, and me, Jillian Pensavali. And our editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek. Find me on Twitter at Jillian with a G. And remember, just let the women do the work. I'm so happy you're here. I love you. That I could call you a friend blows my mind. But like, how, why on earth did you give us a shot? I can't remember how I even like first learned of your show. Somebody tweeted about it. And I'm like, a funny, true crime. And honestly, my first instinct was to be completely offended. I'm like, totally. you cannot do funny, true crime. This is like, just, you know, disrespectful to everybody involved. But I was like, let me just check out like Jesus Camp. I listened to something. I can't remember. <laughs> and yeah. I laughed so hard I peed. And then when I heard, <laughs> I actually peed. <laughs> 